I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation in six parts of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, we are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed but we know that some of you out there prefer our modern, digestible chunks approach to show delivery digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach, so this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com, Email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com. Join our friendly group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash theparanoidstrain. And if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit out. Before we get started, we are going to spoil the shit out of these books and talking about them. However, the ideas and the characters' imperfect muddling through of the various worlds they inhabit are the real core of the PKD experience. So even would you know what you're getting into before you read them, you really still won't know what you're getting into. Do yourself a favor and pick up any of these books sometime soon. We're only going to talk about those earlier books that the man eventually re-examined through the 2374 lens. Which means we're not really going to talk much about The Man in the High Castle, his famous foray into an alternate history where the Germans and Japanese won World War II and took over the United States, even though it's amazing. And we're not really going to talk much about Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, the novel that was loosely adapted into the legendary Blade Runner, except to mention that it's a great encapsulation of his interest-slash-fear that it would be essentially impossible for a person to determine whether he was in fact human or simply a sufficiently advanced android or AI. 
Instead, we're going to focus on a few books that, while great on their own, end up having a profound effect on his later philosophy, and we'll start with perhaps the book that comes up most often in the exegesis, 1969's Ubik. The best way to ask for beer is to sing out Ubik. Made from select hops, choice water, slow age for perfect flavor, Ubik is the nation's number one choice in beer, made only in Cleveland. Perk up pouting household surfaces with new Miracle Ubik, the easy-to-apply, extra-shiny, non-stick plastic coating. Entirely harmless if used as directed. Saves endless scrubbing, glides you right out of the kitchen. First, a plot summary. A businessman named Glenn Runciter operates a company that specializes in deploying inertials. That is, people with the ability to disrupt the powers of telepathic and precognitive agents who are often employed to conduct industrial and other espionage in the far distant future year of 1992. So in other words, you hire Runciter's people if you're worried that your competitors are going to use psychics to steal your secrets. It's important to remember that PKD believed that psychic phenomena were real, if exceedingly rare, and that they were becoming more common in the population during his lifetime. Anyway, our main character, Joe Chip, works for Runciter and is sent on a high-paying, super-secret mission on the moon that turns out to be a setup by Runciter's biggest business rival, a guy who deploys the telepaths that Runciter's people are sent to block. There's a huge explosion. Runciter is killed. Chip and the team barely escape alive. However, when they return to Earth, they discover that things are getting weird. Everyday items seem much older than they should. They're confronted with ancient models of cars, home appliances, etc. And weirdly, Runciter's face and voice start appearing in various places, including on the money. Worst of all, members of the team are, one by one, withering away and dying. Desperate for an explanation, Joe finds messages left by Runciter that inform him that, in fact, the boss is the only one who survived the explosion, and that all the rest of them are already dead. Runciter is trying to keep them alive in a sort of frozen, suspended animation, but some other force is gradually stalking them down and killing them. They eventually figure out what's happening and why the world is regressing to the past, etc. But the main thing we're going to want to focus on here is that Runciter tells Chip to find and use a spray-on substance called Ubik. That's spelled U-B-I-K. Somehow, Ubik protects Joe from the effects that have killed the other inertials. And while there's an explanation for how it was created within the novel itself and eventually Joe settles down in his simulated frozen existence as Runciter's advisor, with a protective lifetime supply of Ubik, the novel's closing chapter makes it seem as if nothing is quite so cleanly wrapped up. First, there's the fact that Runciter, who again is apparently within the novel, still alive and in the real world, discovers that Joe Chip's face is appearing on his money all of a sudden, just as Runciter's face did in the inertial's suspended animation reality. But the other thing relates to the novel's convention of introducing each chapter with an advertisement for some novel use of the product Ubik. We played one at the beginning of this section, and we'll play another now. Pop tasty Ubik into your toaster, made only from fresh fruit and healthful all-vegetable shortening. Ubik makes breakfast a feast, puts zing in your thing. Safe when handled as directed. The final commercial of this kind in the book is significantly different in tone. Let's see if you can hear why we say that. I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns, I made the worlds, I created the lives and the places they inhabit. I move them here, I put them there. They go as I say, they do as I tell them. I am the word, and my name is never spoken, the name which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am. I shall always be. Wait, 
Yupik is supposed to be God? Maybe. The novel leaves it unclear. But as you can imagine, the fact that he had written Yubik years before his 74 experience served as proof positive to Dick that the true unknowable god was communicating through his writing in the orthogonal time stream, trying to share something about how the Messiah's message was smuggled into the world through innocuous means, like a spray can that protects the user from the destructive effects of time that's moving in the wrong direction. You're saying Phil wrote this book, which has centered around the idea of backward-flowing time, and then years later had an experience of being contacted by this Valus thingy, which then told him that time was, in fact, flowing in their own direction somehow, in the reality he experienced. I can see why he thought his books from the past were made to explain the future. Yeah, it's fucking weird, right? I mean, you can see how this shit would blow PKD's always fragile sanity into a still more questionable state. Next up, we have A Scanner Darkly, one of Dick's bleakest and most autobiographical novels, and one that he worked on both before and after the Valus incident. The story centers around Bob Arctor, just one among a house full of drug addicts, albeit one who also happens to be an undercover police officer tasked with spying on precisely the users and dealers who make up Bob Arctor's social circle. To facilitate this double life and keep his identity as a cop secret, Arctor wears a device called a scramble suit whenever he visits the police station. It projects a constant stream of elements from a million different people's faces over the wearer's own. Again, Dick didn't care too much about how his technological MacGuffins worked, as long as they accomplished his fictional goals. And when Bob is at the station, he goes by the name Fred. So while Fred is busily reporting away on the activities of Bob's druggy friends, he's also trying to figure out where one specific dealer, Donna, gets her supply of a particularly dangerous psychedelic called Substance D. It so happens, of course, that Donna is Bob's beloved girlfriend, and he himself is pretty badly strung out on said Substance D. You can probably see where this is going. The double life leads to a complete split in the Bob-Fred personalities, such that Fred doesn't recognize Bob in the police surveillance tapes he reviews, and Bob doesn't recall his life as a policeman at all. Eventually, both personalities crumble into a full nervous breakdown. Fred's superiors realize their star cop is a Substance D addict who's lost touch with reality, and they send him to rehab. Only that's yet another double cross as Bob meets his beloved Donna in the rehab center and discovers that she, in fact, is also a secret cop. That all of this was set up to get Bob slash Fred into this facility where the police believe the flower that produces Substance D is secretly being cultivated. Bob slash Fred, now a completely broken shell of a man, is given a new identity as Bruce, and the novel ends with Bruce finding the pretty blue flower, i.e. the evidence, and in his shattered mind, planning to give it to his friends, the police. Even before the Valus incident, this was a highly personal book, based on the author's own foray into drug addiction and the community of broken people that formed around him during the period 1970-72. to 72. After Nancy, Wife number four, if you're keeping track and their daughter left, Dick felt he was falling into schizophrenia and suicidal ideation, and so sought to distract himself with other people. As Sutton notes in Divine Invasions, he was willing to go to any lengths to find companionship. He would consent to any terms. He opened his sense of Anisha House first to friends, then to all comers. He offered them drugs, beer, music, his mind, wit, kindness, and a broken heart. He craved affection and embraced chaos. Surrounded by drunks, addicts, and illicit substances, Dick's world descended into its profoundest period of madness and dislocation. 
Sutton chronicles how Dick's ever-increasing amphetamine use was accompanied, as one might expect, by an increased paranoia that the house and its occupants were under constant surveillance by one or more federal or state agencies. Paranoia being a common side effect of amphetamine abuse. There's more, of course. The deaths of several friends from this period before the book was even published, a stay by Phil in a psych ward at Stanford. But it all ended up reflected in the split personality of Bob and Fred in Scanner. So it's obvious that the main character's split personality is in some way a channeling of Dick's self-diagnosed schizophrenia during this period. But after 2374, the book began to take on a completely new set of meanings in the exegesis. The first of which is, of course, that it presaged the dual identities of PKD and 3rd century Thomas, which we've discussed before. Again, for Dick, this served as proof that his past books were in some sense inspired by the subsequent Pink Light event. But later in the exegesis, the book takes on an even loftier meaning, as in this quote. An incredibly eerie thought came to me just now after reading over a typed page in which I described the Black Iron Prison. Remember, that's his shorthand for the Mad God's plot to trap us in a fake timeline while the 3rd century Roman Empire continues in the real one. It's occluding us in such a way that we can't even tell we're occluded. It's the damaged mind trying unsuccessfully to monitor its own damage. What piece of writing does this sound like that I've published? Scanner, of course. So, Ubik is a statement about orthogonal time. Scanner Darkly is about how our realities are split, and our understanding of ourselves is distorted by a universal conspiracy. What's next? Well, God himself, both the good and bad versions, in the form of my personal favorite of PKD's novels, 1965's The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. Wow, that title is a mouthful even for sci-fi. Wait till you hear the plot. In the distant future year of 2016... Here we go again. A 1960s sci-fi writer failing to put his fiction far enough in the future, producing some laughable series of assumptions that for present-day people sounds completely ridiculous. Ahem. In 2016, humanity has managed to completely destroy the planet's ecosystem, leading to massive dislocations caused by extreme weather, eventually leading many, if not most, people to retreat into virtual fantasy worlds where they can live out richer, more expansive, meaningful lives, manipulating avatars, and avoiding their real-life problems. Still think he was way off? Actually, that sounds, if anything, a little too accurate. Of course, in this version, there's a climate catastrophe so great it's essentially scorching the surface of the planet and making it impossible to go outdoors. So the world's governments hold lotteries that send the winners to remote colonies on the other planets of the solar system, ensuring that overpopulation doesn't doom the lucky few remaining in their climate-controlled cities on Earth. Our main characters are Leo Bolero, the owner of Perky Pat Layouts, Inc., and Barney Mayerson, his number one precog. That is, a person with a limited ability to see the future. Perky Pat is a sort of future Barbie doll, and the creation of clothes, accessories, vehicles, and rooms for her and her boyfriend Walt has become the largest industry in the solar system. Barney uses his precog abilities to predict which Perky Pat accessories are going to be in vogue next year. Which might seem a little weird until you learn that there's an illicit but widely used drug called Can-D. That's spelled C-A-N hyphen D. The effect of which is to cause the user to project him or herself into Pat and Walt's world experiencing their doll-sized existence as a fully realized, completely convincing reality simulation, if only for a limited time. Given that life on the outer planets is miserable, consisting of subsistence farming and life in sterile communal life support spaces, colonists tend to spend all their available cash buying candy and scaled-down replicas of the appliances, clothes, stereos, and other things that remind them of the good old days of Earth in the 20th century, all so they can escape from reality for a little while. 
Jesus, that's bleak. Yeah. So the plot of the book is pretty complicated, but it revolves around the sudden return of wealthy adventurer Palmer Eldritch. Think Richard Branson, only within a mechanical arm, artificial eyes, and metal teeth. Whose ship crash-landed on Pluto after a years-long journey to another star system. Leo, the owner of the Perky Pat Layouts Company, learns of a rumor that Eldritch has brought with him a new drug called Chew-Z. That's Chew with a hyphen Z at the end. That lets users enter a realistic hallucinated world, just like candy, but it's longer-lasting, more addictive, and works without the need for the doll layouts. Leo senses a threat to his whole enterprise and works with Barney, who loses the lottery and gets shipped off to Mars, in a quest to kill Eldritch and put an end to Chew-Z altogether. But here's where it gets super-duper weird. Both Barney and Leo are eventually exposed to Chew-Z, and they discover not only that the drug allows you to have a completely realistic simulated experience of whatever reality you can imagine, but that each simulation will last as long as you want it to. Meaning that by choosing extremely long simulations with only brief journeys back to your body to consume more of the drug and resume the lucid dreaming, Eldritch is, in some sense, selling immortality. I bet you there's a catch, though. Oh yeah, a big one. It turns out that Eldritch is able to appear at will in these imagined worlds and indeed take control of them, with one or another person in these unreal realities suddenly sorting the artificial teeth, eyes, and arm of Eldritch as the tip-off to his presence. Boy, does that sound just like the way the agents in the Matrix are able to ghost in and out of other bodies. Yes, indeed. As the novel progresses, and there are just a ton of twists and turns we're glossing over, it becomes clear to Leo and Barney that either Eldritch became something like a god during his stay in the other star system, or that some godlike being possessed and obliterated the human Eldritch. And then it gets really, really, really deeply fucked up, as when Leo, in the midst of a choosy nightmare, finds himself walking around an artificial moon in what appears to be the future. He meets two beings, and they show him a statue memorializing the fact that in their past, Leo heroically killed Palmer Eldritch, the enemy of the soul system, according to the plaque. Leo, suspicious that they are merely hallucinations brought on by the drug, offers his hand to shake. He reached his hand out to the first Terran. I'd like to shake hands with you, he said. Alec, the Terran, extended his hand too with a smile. Leo's hand passed through Alex and emerged on the far side. Hey, Alex said, frowning. He at once, piston-like, withdrew his hand. What's going on? To his companion, he said, this guy isn't real. We should have suspected it. He's a, what do they used to call them? From chewing that diabolical drug that Eldritch picked up in the prox system? A chooser, that's what. He's a phantasm. He glared at Leo. I am, Leo said feebly, and then realized that Alec was right. His actual body was on Luna. He was not really here. But what did that make the two evolved Terrans? Perhaps they were not constructs of Eldritch's busy mind. Perhaps they alone were genuinely here. Wait, so in the middle of his drug-induced vision... Our guy sees two other hallucinations and comes to the conclusion that they might actually be real, while he is a hallucination. It's a hell of a book. By the end of it, we're in a situation where the evil godlike manifestation represented by Palmer Eldritch has maybe been contained, or destroyed, or maybe it's triumphant and quickly infecting all of reality. It's super great. Check it out. Phil wrote this back in 65, nearly a decade before 2374. But its weird views of an evil god and a multi-layered network of shared hallucinations gives his eventual exegesis study of it plenty to chew on. At certain times, he thinks the novel is a warning about the sinister machinations of Yaldaba Oath and co., the evil gods of this world, and how they're fabricating the black iron prison of reality to deceive and distract us, just as Eldritch and Chu were designed to do. 
But he also holds, at different points, a starkly different view. Sometimes he seems to believe his book accurately describes the Messiah force coming from the real God to our world, but just misconstrues it as an evil instead of a good thing. From the exegesis. When I recently reread Stigmata, I saw it for what it was. A penetrating, acute, and exhaustive study of the miracle of transubstantiation, simply reversing the bipolarities of good and evil. For you non-Catholics, transubstantiation is the belief that the bread and wine offered by the priest during Mass literally becomes the body and blood of Christ. Only, you know, here it's choosy, turning everybody into Palmer Eldritch. Since all of them were consuming hosts of the same deity, they all became the same deity, and their separate or human identities were abolished. They literally became the deity, all of them, one after another. Seems like he's kind of trying to have his cake and eat it too, no? His book is either a warning about the bad guy God, or it is to be read as, for some reason, negative metaphor for the positive experience of the actions of the good guy God and his emissary. Yeah, I never said he was consistent, just really interesting. But of course, he didn't just reinterpret his previous books after 1974. He also wrote new ones. But before we tackle those, let's pull on the final reality thread we plan to cover here, one that speaks deeply to PKD's obsessions. Much of what Dick is dealing with in his exegesis concerns the highly subjective experiences he's had, in terms not only of explaining what exactly happened to him in 74, but also how such idiosyncratic material may or may not be supposed to affect others. In other words, when Dick learned of the Black Iron Prison, the pink light of Velas, the idea of orthogonal time, was he simply trapped in a malfunctioning brain? Or had some deeper, undefined part of his consciousness made genuine contact with the unknown? To try to answer that, we're going to have to tap into the modern theory of consciousness. We all experience it. So, what the fuck is it exactly? And can something that takes place in one brain be said to have an entirely local, chemical explanation? Perhaps, is there something deeper about the universe that points to consciousness as a fundamental, even universally shared, yet underexplained facet of reality? Or, as Dick himself phrased it in the exegesis, referring to the problem of consciousness and its relationship to the universe as a vast brain. This vast brain must be an organizing principle, a system of linking. How, if at all, does this system exist independently from the constituents which it links together? The same question has long been debated about the relationship between a human mind and its brain. Can the mind exist independently from the brain? Jesus, I think we're getting into sitar music, colored stoner, philosophy territory again. No, come on, trust me, we're on real, if rather out there, territory here. So let's start out by trying to define what we mean when we call something conscious. In another way, what do we mean when we say that we have a self? We'll start with V.S. Ramachandran. He's one of the foremost neuroscientists working today, and here's his explanation from a brief tour of human consciousness. What exactly is meant by the self? Its defining characteristics are fivefold. First, continuity. Second, and closely related, is the idea of unity or coherence of self. Third, is a sense of embodiment or ownership. We feel ourselves anchored to our bodies. Fourth, a sense of agency, what we call free will. Fifth, and most elusive of all, the self is capable of reflection. 
of being aware of itself. Okay, that seems pretty accurate to what most of us experience as self. But of course, that doesn't really tell us anything. For example, you may have heard the expression, a brain in a vat. For a fairly robust discussion of this topic, let's return to Jim Baggett's book, A Beginner's Guide to Reality, which we also touched on last episode. Suppose there exists an evil scientist who is able to remove your brain from your skull and keep it alive in a vat of nutrients. I'm afraid he disposes of your body. He is also able to preserve intact your optic nerve, your olfactory nerve, your gustatory nerves, and the nerves leading to your somatic sensory and auditory cortices. All these nerve endings would ordinarily be connected to the sensory organs in your body, but our evil scientist connects them instead to the output terminals of a vast computer. The nerve endings from your motor cortices are likewise connected to the computer's input terminals. All the neuronal pathways in your brain are preserved. All your short and long-term memories are retained, together with your sense of identity and self. So make no mistake, the brain in the vat is you. The computer is programmed to run a virtual reality simulation of the world that you know. The simulation produces output signals corresponding to the nerve stimulations required to reproduce this world in your brain and thence in your mind. These electrical signals are fed into your brain, which is actually now sitting quite comfortably in a vat. However, you interpret these signals in your mind as the world around you. The evil scientist has erased from your mind all memory of the operation he has performed. As far as you are concerned, nothing untoward has happened to you. Your life goes on as it did before. This devilish brain-in-a-vat scenario is a philosophical concoction and has become most closely associated with the contemporary philosopher Hilary Putnam. He wrote, It can also seem to the victim that he is sitting and reading these very words about the amusing but quite absurd supposition that there is an evil scientist who removes people's brains from their bodies and places them in a vat of nutrients which keep the brains alive. So, could you be just a brain in a vat? If all your knowledge of the physical world around you is derived from your perceptions, and your perceptions were being manipulated to give you the impression of reality, then how would you know otherwise? Of course, you're already thinking of the Matrix here, but there are a bunch of other great fictional portrayals of this general idea. For example, in the Hitchhiker's Guide series, former galactic president and supreme ego monster Zaphod Beeblebrox is forced to enter a device called the Total Perspective Vortex, designed to destroy the mind of sentient beings by demonstrating to them precisely how insignificant they are in relation to the full majesty of the universe. A few seconds later, he emerges. Hi. Beeblebrox, you're... Fine, fine. Could I have a drink, please? You've been in the vortex? You saw me, kid. And you saw the whole infinity of creation? The lot, baby. It's a real neat place, you know that? And you saw yourself in relation to it all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what did you experience? What did you experience? What did you experience? He just told me what I knew all the time. I'm a really great guy. <laughs> Didn't I tell you, baby? I am Zaphod Beeblebrox. Zaphod survives only because someone has placed him in a simulated reality in which he is actually as important to the universe as his subjective experience tells him he is. There's a similarly awesome laying out of the problem of perception and reality in the John Carpenter low-budget sci-fi classic Dark Star, when a crew member of a spaceship decides to use some of these ideas to argue a sentient bomb into stopping its detonation sequence. In other words, all that I really know about the outside world is relayed to me through my electrical connections. Exactly! Why? That would mean that I really don't know what the outside universe is like at all, for certain. That's it. That's it. Intriguing. I wish I had more time to discuss this matter. Why don't you have more time? Because I must detonate in 75 seconds. Now, Bomb, 
consider this next question very carefully. What is your one purpose in life? To explode, of course. And you can only do it once, right? That is correct. And you wouldn't want to explode on the basis of false data, would you? Of course not. Well then, you've already admitted that you have no real proof of the existence of the outside universe. Yes, well... So you have no absolute proof that Sergeant Pinback ordered you to detonate. I recall distinctly the detonation order. My memory is good on matters like these. Of course you remember it, but... But all you're remembering is merely a series of sensory impulses which you now realize have no real definite connection with, with outside reality. True. But since this is so, I have no proof that you are really telling me all this. That's all beside the point. I mean, the concept is valid no matter where it originates. Hmm. So if you detonate in... Nine seconds. You could be doing so on the basis of false data. I have no proof it was false data. You have no proof it was correct data! I must think on this further. All of these musing entities experiencing consciousness and wondering about what it all means could conceivably have no connection to the physical world, and yet they would still have the idea of a self. But for the moment, let's assume that this is not the case. Let's take it that our consciousness exists in physical bodies that more or less correspond to the bodies we perceive through our senses. We return to Ramachandran, who invites us to consider how incredibly complicated the human brain is. The brain is made up of 100 billion nerve cells, or neurons, which form the basic structural and functional units of the nervous system. Each neuron makes something like 1,000 to 10,000 contacts with other neurons, and these points of contact are called synapses. It is here that exchange of information occurs. Based on this information, it has been calculated that the number of possible permutations and combinations of brain activity, in other words, the number of brain states, exceeds the number of elementary particles in the known universe. Which is awe-inspiring to contemplate. But the issue is, we don't really have an idea of how the firing of those neurons produces the idea that I am me or that you are you. Trying to pin down what consciousness might mean is a real pain in the ass. If you remember our discussion last time, the modern problem of consciousness, what is today known as the mind-body problem, was kicked off by René Descartes. Since you hopefully listened to last episode, you know that he's the guy that proved we can know we exist because we are thinking, even if all of our other senses are lying to us. Well, Descartes also pointed out that there appear to be completely distinct worlds of mental and physical processes. As usual, we're going to let somebody qualified explain this for us. Descartes believed that he could cast doubt on the existence of his body, but not the existence of his mind. The fact that he could doubt one but not the other told him he must be made of two different kinds of stuff. This view, known as substance dualism, says the world is made of both physical stuff and mental stuff. Substance dualists say that minds are a separate non-physical substance that cannot be reduced to or explained in terms of physical stuff like brains. And in this view, some things like God are pure mind and other things like rocks are pure matter. But humans, well, we're kind of special. We're the only kind of thing that combines both stuffs into one being, both body and mind. What's more, these two substances appear to interact with each other inside of us. This is called interactionism. When I make up my mind to do something, I have the power to compel my body to do as I please, to get up off the couch and make myself a nice PB&J, for example. 
example. What's more, my mental states seem to have the ability to affect my physical states, even against my will. You ever notice how many people who are grieving or under a lot of stress, for example, often get physically sick? Likewise, our bodies also appear to be able to affect our minds. Like when you're so hungry, you just can't focus on what your teacher is saying at all, or how a pure physical pleasure, like having a good cuddle with your cat, can pull you out of a bad mood. Interactionists say that what's going on with these experiences is that our two substances, minds and bodies, are interacting with each other. But if you think about it, this is actually a pretty puzzling proposition. How can a purely mental thing have any effect on a purely physical thing? The puzzle of how minds and bodies can interact with each other is known as the mind-body problem. This is the problem that makes us wonder, how can my body have a separate entity called a mind lurking inside of it, controlling it, and being controlled by it? What would tether my mind to this body in particular? Why couldn't my mind just go running off on its own, or take a dip into other bodies to see what it's like in there? Many modern philosophers of mind, seeing no way to solve the mind-body problem, have felt compelled to abandon substance dualism altogether. Some are happy to be physicalists, but others are convinced that there are some parts of the human experience that simply can't be boiled down to brains.